This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. Welcome to Part 5 of the First Centuries. This episode will take a look at Irenaeus. The historical record is pretty clear that the Apostle John spent his last years in Western Asia Minor, with the city of Ephesus acting as his headquarters. It seems that during his time there, he poured himself into a cadre of capable men who went on to provide outstanding leadership for the church in the midst of difficult trials. Men like Polycarp of Smyrna, Papias and Apollinarius of Hierapolis, and Melito of Sardis. These and others were mentioned by Polycrates, the bishop of Ephesus, in a letter to Victor, the bishop of Rome, in about AD 190. These students of John are considered to be the last of what's called the Apostolic Age, and the greatest of them was Irenaeus. Though he wasn't a direct student of the Apostle John, he was influenced heavily by Polycarp and is considered by many as one of the premier and first of the Church Fathers. Not much is known of Irenaeus's origins. From what we can piece together from his writings, he was most likely born and raised in Smyrna around AD 120. He was instructed by Smyrna's lead pastor, Polycarp, the student of John. He says that he was also directly influenced by other pupils of the apostles, though he doesn't name them. Polycarp had the biggest impact on him, as is evidenced by his comment, quote, What I heard from him, I didn't write on parchment, but on my heart. By God's grace, I bring it constantly to mind, unquote. Now, it's possible that Irenaeus accompanied Polycarp when he traveled to Rome and engaged Bishop Anikitos in the Easter controversy that we talked about in the last episode. At some point, while still a young man, Irenaeus went to southern Gaul as a missionary. He settled at Lugdunum, where he became an elder in the church there. Lugdunum eventually became the town of Lyon, France. In 177, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, the church in Lugdunum was hammered by fierce persecution. But Irenaeus had been sent on a mission to Rome to deal with the Montanus controversy. While away, the church's elderly pastor, Pothinus, was martyred. And by the time Irenaeus returned in 178, the persecution had spent itself, and so he was appointed as the new pastor. Irenaeus worked tirelessly to mend the holes that persecution had punched in the church in southern Gaul. In both teaching and writing, he provided resources that other church leaders could use in faithfully discharging their pastoral duties as well as refuting the various and sundry errors that were challenging the new faith. During his term as the pastor of the church at Lyon, he was able to see a majority of the population of the city converted to Christ, and dozens of missionaries were sent out to plant churches all across Gaul. Then, about 190, Irenaeus simply disappears with no clear account of his death. A 5th century tradition says that he died a martyr in 202 in the persecution under Septimus Severus. The problem with that is that several church fathers like Eusebius, Hippolytus, and Tertullian uncharacteristically fail to mention Irenaeus' martyrdom. Now, because martyrs achieved hero status, if Irenaeus had been martyred, well, the church most likely would have marked it. So, most likely, he died of natural causes. However he died, 
He was buried under the altar of St. John's Church in Lyon. Irenaeus' influence far surpassed the importance of his location. The bishopric of Lyon was not considered a very important seat, but Irenaeus' impact on the faith was outsized to his position. His keen intellect united a Greek education with astute philosophical analysis and a sharp understanding of the scriptures to produce a remarkable defense of the gospel. That was badly needed at the time due to the inroads that were being forged by a new threat known as Gnosticism, which we spent time describing in season one. Irenaeus's articulation of the faith brought about a unanimity that united the east and west branches of the church that had been diverging. They would eventually end up reverting to that divergence later, but Irenaeus managed to bring about a temporary peace through his clear defense of the faith against the Gnostics. Irenaeus admits that he had a difficult time mastering the Celtic dialect that was spoken by the people where he served, but his capacity in Greek, in which he composed his writings, was both elegant and eloquent without running to the mere flowery. His content shows that he was familiar with the classics by authors like Homer, Hesiod, and Sophocles, as well as philosophers like Pythagoras and Plato. He shows a like familiarity with earlier Christian writers such as Clement, Justin Martyr, and Tatian. But Irenaeus is really only one generation away from Jesus and the original apostles due to a couple very long lifetimes, that of John and then of his pupil Polycarp. We find their influence in Irenaeus' remark impugning the appeal of Gnosticism when he says, quote, The true way to God is through love. Better to know nothing but the crucified Christ than fall into the impiety of overly curious inquiries and silly nuances, unquote. Reading Irenaeus' work on the core doctrines of the faith reveals his wholehearted embrace of Pauline theology in the New Testament. Where Irenaeus goes beyond John and Paul was in his handling of ecclesiology, that is, matters of the organization of the church. Irenaeus wrote on things like the proper handling of the sacraments and how authority in the church ought to be passed on. A close reading of the second century church fathers reveals that this issue was a major concern to them, and it makes sense that it would. Jesus had commissioned the apostles to carry on his mission and to lay the foundation of the faith and church. The apostles had done that. But in the second century, the men the apostles had raised up were themselves aging out. Church leaders were burdened with the question of how to properly pass on the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints to those who came next. What was the plan? Well, we'll come back to that later. Irenaeus was a staunch advocate of what we'll call biblical theology, as opposed to a theology that was derived from philosophical musings propped up by random Bible verses. He's the first of the church fathers to make a liberal use of both the Old and New Testaments in his writings. He uses all four Gospels and nearly all the letters of the New Testament in the development of his theology. His goal in it all was to establish unity among believers. He was so zealous for it because of the rising popularity of Gnosticism, a new religious fascination attractive to an increasing number of Christians. Historians have come to understand that like many emergent faiths, Gnosticism was itself fractured into different flavors. 
the brand that Irenaeus dealt with was one of the most popular in his region. It was Valentinian Gnosticism, or what is known as Valentinianism. While several writings are attributed to Irenaeus, by far his most important and famous was Against Heresies. It was his refutation of Gnosticism. Written sometime between 177 and 190, its five volumes is considered by most to be the premier theological work of the Anti-Nicene era. Anti-Nicene meaning before the Nicene Council. It's also the main source of knowledge for historians on Gnosticism and Christian doctrine in the Apostolic Age. It was composed in response to a request by a friend wanting a brief on how to deal with the errors of both Valentinius and Marcion. Both had taught in Rome 30 years earlier, and their ideas had spread to France. The first of the five volumes is a dissection of what Valentinianism taught, and more generally, how it differed from the other sects of Gnosticism. It shows that Irenaeus had a remarkable grasp of a belief system that he utterly and categorically rejected. The second book reviewed the internal inconsistencies and contradictions of Gnosticism. The last three volumes give a systematic refutation of Gnosticism from scripture and tradition, which Irenaeus makes clear at that time were one and the same. Let me say that again, because I think it's important. The last three volumes of his work Against Heresies give a systematic refutation of Gnosticism from scripture and tradition which Irenaeus made clear at that time were one and the same. He shows that the gospel, which was at first only oral, was subsequently committed to writing, then was faithfully taught in churches through a succession of pastors and elders. So, Irenaeus says, the apostolic faith and tradition is embodied in scripture and in the right interpretation of those scriptures by pastors. And remember that that word pastor back at that era of the church was equivalent to bishop. Bishop, pastor, pastor, bishop, same thing. Irenaeus said that the church ought to have a confidence in those pastors' interpretations of God's word because they've attained their office through a demonstrated succession. Of course, the succession that Irenaeus referred to was manifestly evident by virtue of the fact that he wrote in the last quarter of the second century and was himself, as we've just seen, only a generation removed from the Apostle John. Irenaeus said all of this over against the contradictory opinions of heretics who fundamentally deviated from this well-established faith and simply could not be included in the Catholic, that is, universally agreed on faith, carved out by scripture and its orthodox interpretation by a properly sanctioned teaching office. The fifth and final volume of Against Heresies includes Irenaeus's exposition of premillennial eschatology, that is the study of last things, or in modern parlance, the end times. No doubt he does so because it stood in stark contrast with the muddled teaching of the Gnostics on the subject. It might be noted that Irenaeus's premillennialism wasn't unique. He stood squarely with the other writers of the apostolic and post-apostolic age. Irenaeus's view of the inspiration of scripture is an early anticipation of what came to be known as the verbal plenary inspiration. That is, both the writings and the authors of scripture were inspired 
so that what God wanted expressed was without turning the writers into automatons. God expressed his will through the varying personalities of the original authors. Irenaeus even accounts for the variations in Paul's style across his epistles to his, at times, rapid-fire dictation and the agency the Holy Spirit's urging at different times and in different situations. His emphasis on both scripture and the apostolic tradition of its interpretation has been seen as a boon to the idea of establishing an official teaching magisterium in the church. Added to that is his remarks that the church at Rome held a special place in providing leadership for the church as a whole. Irenaeus based this on Rome being the location of the martyrdoms of both Peter and Paul. While Irenaeus acknowledges that these two did not start the church there, he reasoned they most certainly were regarded as its leaders when they were there. And there was a tradition that Peter appointed the next bishop, a guy by the name of Linus, to lead the church when he was executed. While it's true that Irenaeus did indeed suggest Rome ought to take the lead, he said that it was the church there that ought to do so, not its bishop. The point may seem minor, but it's important to note that Irenaeus himself resisted positions taken by the bishop at Rome. In our last episode, we noted his chronicle of Polycarp's and Anikidos' disagreement over when to celebrate Easter. Anikidos' successor was Bishop Victor, who took a hardline approach with the Cordodecamanians and wanted to forcefully punish them. While as the bishop of the church in Lyon, Irenaeus was ready to follow the policy of the church at Rome, he objected to Victor's heavy-handedness and reminded him of his predecessor's far more fair-minded policy. So while Irenaeus does indeed urge a role of first place for the church at Rome, we can't go so far as to say he established the principle of the primacy of the bishop of Rome. He was not an apologist for papal primacy. Nor does he advocate apostolic succession as it has come to be defined today. What Irenaeus does say is that the scriptures have to be interpreted rightly, meaning they have to align with that which the apostles consistently taught, and that the people who were to be trusted to that end were those linked back to the apostles because they'd heard them explain themselves. He argued this because the Gnostics claimed a secret oral tradition given to them directly from Jesus. Irenaeus maintained that the pastors and elders of the church were well known and linked to the apostles, and it always maintained the same message that wasn't secret at all. Therefore, it was those pastors who provided the only safe interpretation of Scripture. For Irenaeus, apostolic authority was only valid so long as it actually squared with apostolic teaching, which itself was codified in the Gospels and the epistles of the New Testament, along with what the direct students of the apostles said they'd taught. Irenaeus didn't concoct a formula for the passing of apostolic authority from one generation to the next in perpetuity. Irenaeus became a treasured authority for men like Hippolytus and Tertullian, who drew freely from him. He also became a major source for establishing the canon of the New Testament. He regarded the entire Old Testament as God's word, as well as most of the books of our New Testament, while excluding a large number of Gnostic pretenders. There is some evidence that before Irenaeus, believers lined up under different Gospels as their preferred accounts of the life of Jesus. 
The churches of Asia Minor preferred the Gospel of John, while Matthew was most popular overall. Irenaeus made a convincing case that all four Gospels were God's Word. That made him the earliest witness to the canonicity of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This stood over against the accepted writings of a heretic named Marcion, who only accepted portions of Luke's Gospel. Irenaeus cited passages of the New Testament about a thousand times in his writings from 21 of the 27 books, including the book of Revelation. Inferences to the other books can be found in his writings as well. Irenaeus provides a perfect bridge from the apostles to the next phase of church history, which was presided over by men that we call the church fathers, of which he's considered among the first. (laughs) 